Section six of Orientations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Brenda. Orientations by W. Smith at Mom. Section six. The choice of Amintas. Part one. Often enough, the lover of cities tires of their unceasing noise. The din of the traffic buzzes perpetually in his ears, and even in the silences of night he hears the footfalls on the pavements, the dull stamping of horses, the screeching of wheels, the fog chokes up the lungs so that he cannot breathe. He sees no longer any charms in the tall chimneys of the factory and the heavy smoke widening in curves against the leaden sky then he flies to countries where the greenness is like cold spring water where he can hear the butting of the trees and the stars tell him fantastic things the silence is full of mysterious new emotions and so the writer sometimes grows weary to death of the life he sees and he presses his hands before his eyes that he may hide from him the endless failure in the endless quest then he too sets sail for bohemia by the sea and the other countries of the frankly impossible where men are always brave and women ever beautiful there the tears of the morning are followed by laughter at night trials are easily surmountable virtue is always triumphant there no illusions are lost and lovers live ever happily in a world without end once upon a time very long ago when the world was younger and more wicked than it is now there lived in the west country a man called peter the schoolmaster but he was very different from ordinary schoolmasters for he was a scholar and a man of letters he was consequently very poor all his life he had pored over old books and musty parchments but from them he had acquired a little wisdom for one bright springtime he fell in love with a farmer's daughter and married her the farmer's daughter was a buxom wench and to the schoolmaster's delight he had a careless charming soul she presented him in course of time with a round dozen of sturdy children peter compared himself as priam of troy with jacob with king solomon of israel and with queen anne of england peter wrote a latin ode to each offspring in turn which he recited to the assembled multitude when the midwife put into his arms for the first time the new arrival there was great rejoicing over the birth of every one of the twelve children but as was most proper in a land of primogeniture the chiefest joy was the first-born and to him peter wrote an oration ode which was two stanzas longer than the longest Horace ever wrote. Peter vowed that no infant had ever been given the world's greeting in so magnificent a manner. Certainly he had never himself surpassed that first essay, as he told a parson to write twelve odes on paternity. Twelve greetings to the newborn soul is a severe tax even on the most fertile imagination but the object of all this eloquence was the cause of the first and only quarrel between the gentle schoolmaster and his spouse for the learned man had dug out of one of his old books the name of amintas and amintas he vowed should be the name of his son so with that trisyllable he finished every stanza of his ode 
Miss White threw her head back, and putting her hands on her hips, stood with arms akimbo. She said that never in all her born days had she heard of anyone being called by such a name, which was more fit for a heathen idol than for the plain straightforward member of the church by law established. In his stead she suggested that the boy be called Peter, after his father, or John, after hers. The gentle schoolmaster was in the habit of giving way to his wife in all things, and it may be surmised that this was the reason why the pair had lived in happiest concord. But now he was firm. He said it was impossible to call the boy by any other name than Amintas. The name is necessary to the meter of my ode, he said. It is its very life. How can I finish my stanzas with Petrus or Johannes? I would sooner die. His wife did not think the old matter the rap. Peter turned pale with emotion. He could scarcely express himself. Every mother in England has had a child. Children have been born since the days of Cain and Abel, thicker than the sands of the sea. What is a child but an ode? My ode, a child is but an ordinary product of man and woman, but a poem is a divine product of the muses. My poem is sacred. It shall not be defiled by any Petrus or Johannes. Let my house fall about my head. Let my household gods be scattered abroad. Let the face with their serpent's hair render desolate my earth. But do not rob me of my verse. I would sooner lose the light of my eyes than the light of my verse. Ah, let me wander through the land like Homer, sightless, homeless. Let me beg my bread from door to door, and I will sing the ode, the ode to Amintas. He said all this with so much feeling that Mrs. Peter began to cry, and, with her apron up to her eyes, said that she didn't want him to go blind, but even if he did, he should never want but she would work herself to the bone to keep him. Peter waved his hand in tragic deprecation. No, he would bag his bread from door to door. He would sleep by the roadside in the bitter winter night. Now, the parson was present during this colloquy, and he proposed an arrangement. And finally it was settled that Peter should have his way in this case, but that Mrs. Peter should have the naming of all subsequent additions to the family. So, of the rest... One was called Peter, one was called John, and there was a Mary and a Jane and a Sarah. But the eldest, according to agreement, was christened Amintas. Although to her dying day, notwithstanding the parson's assurances, the mother was convinced in her heart of hearts that the name was papistical and not fit for plain, straightforward member of the church by law established. Now, it was as clear as the pike-staff to Peter, the schoolmaster, that a person called Amintas could not go through the world like any other ordinary being. So he devoted particular care to his son's education, teaching him, which was the way of schoolmasters and as now, very many entirely useless things, and nothing that could be to him of the slightest surface in earning his bread and butter. But twelve children cannot be brought up on limpid air, and there were often difficulties when new boots were wanted, sometimes indeed, there were difficulties when bread and meat and puddings were wanted. Such things did not affect Peter. He fell not to pangs of hunger as he read his books, and he vastly preferred to use the white and the yoke of an ape in the restoration of an old leather binding 
than to have it solemnly cooked and thrust into his belly. What cares he for the rantings of his wife and the crying of the children, when he could wander in imagination on Mount Ida, clad only in his beauty, and the three goddesses came to him promising wonderful things? He was a tall, lean man, with thin white hair and blue eyes, but his wrinkled cheeks were still rosy. Incessant snuff-ticking had given a special character to his nose, and sometimes taking upon him the spirit of Catullus, he wrote verses to Lesbia, or beneath the breastplate of Marcus Aurelius, he felt his heart beat bravely as he marched against the barbarians. He was launcelot, and he made charming speeches to Guinevere as he kissed her long white hand. But now and then the clamour of the outer world became too strong, and he had to face seriously the question of his children's appetite. It was on one of these occasions that the schoolmaster called his son to his study and said to him, Amintas, you are now eighteen years of age. I have taught you all I know, and you have profited by my teaching. You know Greek and Latin as well as I do myself. You are well acquainted with Horace and Tully. You have read Homer and Aristotle, and added to this, you can read the Bible in the original Hebrew. That is to say, you have all knowledge at your fingers' ends, and you are prepared to go forth and conquer the world. Your mother will make a bundle of your clothes. I will give you my blessing in a guinea, and you can start tomorrow. Then he returned to his study of an oration of Isocrates. I mean, there is thunderstruck. But, father, where am I to go? The schoolmaster raised his head in surprise, looking at his son over the top of his spectacles. My son, he said, with a wave of the arm, my son, you have the world before you. Is that not enough? Yes, father, said Amintas, who thought it was a great deal too much. But what am I to do? I can't get very far on a guinea. Amintas, answered Peter, rising from his chair with great dignity. Have you profited so ill by the examples of antiquity, which you have had placed before you from your earliest years? Do you not know that riches consist in an equal mind and happiness and golden mediocrity? Did the wise Odysseus quail before the unknown, because he had only a guinea in his pocket? Shame on the heart that doubts. Leave me, my son, and make ready. Amintas very crestfallen, left the room and went to his mother to acquaint her with the occurrence. She was occupied in the performance of the family's toilet. Well, my boy, she said, as she scrubbed the face of the last but one, it's about time that you set about doing something to earn your living, I must say. Now, if instead of learning all this popish stuff about Greek and Latin and Lord knows what. You'd learnt to milk a cow or groom a horse. You'd be as right as a trifid now. Well, I'll put you up a few things in a bundle, as your father said, so you can start early tomorrow morning. Now then, darling, she added, turning to her Benjamin, come and have your face washed. There's a dear. Amintas scratched his head, and presently an inspiration came to him. I will go to the parson, he said. The parson had been hunting, and he was sitting in his study in a great oak chair, drinking a bottle of pot. His huge body and his red face expressed the very completest satisfaction with the world in general. 
one felt that he would go to bed that night with the cheerful happiness of duty performed and snore stentoriously for twelve hours he was troubled by no qualms of conscience the thirty-nine articles caused him never a doubt and it had never occurred to him to concern himself with the condition of the working classes he lived in a golden age when the pauper was allowed to drink himself to death as well as the nobleman and no clergyman's wife read treads by his bedside amyntas told his news well my boy he never spoke but he shouted so you're going away well god bless you amyntas looked at him expectantly and the parson wondering what he expected came to the conclusion that it was a glass of port for at that moment he was able to imagine nothing that man could desire more he smiled benignly upon amyntas and poured him out a glass drink that my boy keep it in your memory it's the finest thing in the world it's port that's made england what she is amyntas drank the port but his face did not express due satisfaction damn the boy said the parson port's wasted on him then thinking again what amyntas might want he rose slowly from his chair stretching his legs i am not so young as i used to be i get stiff after a day's hunting he walked round his room looking at his bookshelves at last he picked out a book and blew the dust off the edges here's a bible for you amyntas the two finest things in the world are port and the bible amyntas thanked him but with that great enthusiasm another idea struck the parson and he shouted out another question have you any money amyntas told him of the guinea damn your father what's the good of a guinea he went to a drawer and pulled out a handful of gold the tithe had been paid a couple of days before here are ten a man can go to hell on ten guineas thank you very much sir said amyntas pocketing the money but i don't think i want to go quite so far just yet then why the devil do you want to go shouted the parson that's just what i came to ask you about why didn't you say so at once i thought you wanted a glass of pot i'd sooner give ten men advice than one man pot he went to the door and called out jane bring me another bottle he drank the bottle in silence while amyntas stood before him resting now upon one leg now upon another turning his cap round and round in his hands at last the parson spoke you may look upon a bottle of port in two ways he said you may take it as a symbol of a happy life or as a method of thought there are four glasses in a bottle the first glass is full of expectation you enter life with mingled feelings you cannot tell whether it will be good or no the second glass has the full savour of the grape it is used with vine leaves in its hair and the passion of young blood the third glass is void of emotion it is grave and calm like middle age drink it slowly you are in full possession of yourself and it will not come again the fourth glass has the sadness of death and the bitter sweetness of retrospect he paused a moment for amyntas to weigh his words but a bottle of port is a better method of thought than any taught by the schoolmen the first glass is that of contemplation i think of your case the second is apprehension an idea occurs to me the third is elaboration i examine the idea and weigh into pros and cons the fourth is realization and here 
I give you the completed scheme. Look at this letter. It is from my old friend Van Tiefel, a Dutch merchant who lives at Cardiff, asking for an English clerk. One of his ships is sailing from Plymouth next Sunday, and it will put in at Cardiff on the way to Turkey. Amintas thought the project could have been formed without a bottle of port, but he was too discreet to say so, and heartily thanked the parson. The good man lived in a time when teetotalism had not ruined the clergy's nerves, and sanctity was not considered incompatible with a good digestion and common humanity. Amintas spent the evening bidding tender farewells to a round dozen of village beauties, whose susceptible hearts had not been proof against the brown eyes and the dimples of the youth. There was indeed woe when he spread the news of his departure, and all those maiden eyes ran streams of salt tears as he bathed them one by one good-bye, and so he squeezed their hands and kissed their lips, vowing them one and all the most unalterable fidelity. They were perfectly inconsolable. It is an interesting fact to notice that the instincts of the true hero are invariably polygamic. It was lucky for Amintas that the parson had given him money, for his father, though he gave him a copy of the Ethics of Aristotle and his blessing, forgot the guinea, and Amintas was too fearful of another reproach to remind him of it. Amintas was up with the lark, and having eaten as largely as he could in his uncertainty of the future, made ready to start the schoolmaster had retired to his study to conceal his agitation he was sitting like agamemnon with dishcloth over his head because he felt his face unable to express his emotion but the boy's mother stood at the cottage door wiping her eyes with the corners of her apron surrounded by her weeping children she threw her arms about her son's neck, giving him a loud kiss on either cheek, and Amintas went the round of his brothers and sisters, kissing them and bidding them not forget him. To console them, he promised to bring back green parrots and golden bracelets and embroidered satins from Japan. As he passed down the village street, he shook hands with the good folk standing at their doors to bid him good-bye, and slowly made his way into the open country. The way of the hero is often very hard, and Amintas felt as if he would choke as he walked slowly along. He looked back at every step, wondering when he would see the old home again. He loitered through the lanes, taking a last farewell of the nooks and corners where he had sat on summer evenings with some fair female friend, and he heartily wished that his name were James or John, and that he were an ordinary farmer's son who could earn his living without going out for it into the wide, wide world. So may Dick Whittington have meditated as he stretched the London road, but the meantime that no talismanic cats and no church bells rang him inspiring messages. Besides, Dick Whittington had in him from his birth the makings of a Lord Mayor, he had the golden mediocrity which is the surest harbinger of success. But to Amintas the world seemed cold and grey, notwithstanding the sunshine of the morning, and the bare branches of the oak trees were nailed and twisted like the fingers of evil fate. At last it came to the top of a little hill, whence one had the last view of the village. He looked at the red-roofed church nestling among the trees, and in front of the inn, 
he could still see the sigh of the Turk's hat. A sob burst from him. He felt he could not leave it all. It would not be so bad if he could see it once more. He might go back at night and wander through the streets. He could stand outside his own home door and look up at his father's light, perhaps seeing his father's shadow bent over his books. He cared nothing that his name was Amintas. He would go to the neighbouring farmers and offer his services as labourer. The village barber wanted an apprentice. Ah, he would ten times sooner be a village Hamden or a songless Milton than any hero. He hid his face in the grass and cried as if his heart were breaking. Presently he cried himself to sleep, and when he awoke the sun was high in the heavens and he had the very healthiest of appetites. He repaired to a neighbouring inn and ordered bread and cheese and a pot of beer. Oh, mighty is the power of beer! Why am I not a poet, that I may stand with my hair dishevelled, one hand in my many bosom and the other? I was stretched with splendid gesture to proclaim the excellent beauty of beer. I vaunt, ye sallow teetotalers, ye manufacturers of lemonade, ye cocoa drinkers, you only see the sodden wretch who hangs about the public-house door in filthy slums, blinking his eyes in the glaze of electric light, shivering in his scanty rags, and you do not know the squalor and the terrible despair of hunger which he strives to forget. But above all, you do not know the glorious ale of the country, the golden-brown ale, with its scent of green hops, its broad scent of the country, its foam is whiter than snow and lighter than the almond blossoms, and it is cold, cold. Amintas drank his beer, and he sighed with great content. The sun shone hopefully upon him now, and the birds tweeted all sorts of inspiring things. Still in his mouth was the delightful bitterness of the hops, he threw off care as a mantle, and he stepped forward with joyful heart. Spain was a wild country, the lands of the grave Hidalgo and the haughty princess. He felt in his strong right arm the power to fight and kill and conquer. Black-bearded villains should capture beautiful maidens on purpose for him to rescue. Fantiful was but a stepping stone. He was not made for the desk of a counting-house. No heist dazzled him. He saw himself being made a peer or a prince, being granted wider means by a grateful monarch. He was not too low to aspire to the hands of king's fair daughter. He was a hero, every inch a hero. Great is the power of beer. Avant, ye sallow teetotalers, ye manufacturers of lemonade, ye cocoa drinkers. At night he slept on the haystack was the blue sky, star-bespangled, with its only roof, and dreams luxurious dreams. The milestones flew past one another as he strode along, two days, three days, four days. On the fifth, as he reached the summit of a little hill, he saw a great expanse of light shining in the distance, and the sea glittered before him, like the bellies of innumerable little silver fishes. He went down the hill, up another, and then saw Plymouth at his feet. The masts of the ships were like great forests of leafless trees. He thanked his stars, for one's imagination is all very well for a while, and the thought of one's future prowess certainly shortens the time. 
but roads are hard and hills are steep one's legs grow tired and one's feet grow sore and things are not so rose-coloured at the end of a journey as at the beginning amyntas could not forever keep thinking of beautiful princesses and feats of arms and after the second day he had exhausted every possible adventure he had raised himself to the highest possible altitudes and his aristocratic amuse had had the most successful outcome he sat down by the little stream that ran along the roadside and bathed his aching feet he washed his face and hands starting down the hills he made his way towards the town and entered the gate amyntas discovered captain thorman of the good ship calderon drinking rum punch in the tavern pallor in those days all men were heroic he gave him the parson's letter well my boy said the captain after twice reading it i don't mind taking you to cardiff i dare say you'll be able to make yourself useful on board what can you do please sir answered amyntas with some pride i know latin and greek i am well acquainted with horace and telly i have read homer and aristotle and edited this i can read the bible in the original hebrew the captain looked at him if you talk to me like that he said i'll shine my glass at your head he shook with rage and the redness of his nose emitted lightning sparks of indignation when he had recovered his speech he asked amyntas why he stood there like an owl and told him to get on board amyntas bowed himself meekly out of the room went down to the harbour and bearing in mind what he had heard of the extreme wickedness of plymouth held tightly on to his money he had been especially warned against the women who lure the unwary seaman into dark dens and rob him of money and life but no adventure befell him thanks chiefly to the swiftness of his heels for when a young lady of prepossessing appearance came up to him and inquired about his health affectionately putting her arm in his he promptly took to his legs and fled amyntas was in luck's way for it was not often that an english ship carried merchandise to spain as a rule the two powers were at decker's drawn but at this period they had just ceased cutting one another's throats and sinking one another's ships joining together in fraternal alliance to cut the throats and sink the ships of a rival power which to the treaty had been a faithful and brotherly ally to his majesty of great britain and which our gracious king had abandoned with unusual dexterity just as he was prepared to abandon him as Aminta stood on the deck of the ship and saw the grey cliffs of albion disappear into the sea he felt the emotions and sentiments which inevitably come to the patriotic englishman who leaves his native shore his melancholy became almost unbearable as the ship getting out into the open sea began to roll and he drank to the dregs of bitter cup of leaving england home beauty and terra firma he went below and climbing painfully into his hammock gave himself over to misery and mal de mer two days he spent of lamentation and gnashing of teeth wishing he had never been born and not till the third day did he come on deck he was pale and weak feeling ever so unheroic but the sky was blue and the ship bounded over the blue waves as if it were alive amyntas sniffed in the salt air and the rushing winds and felt alive again the days went by the sun became hotter and the sky a different deeper blue 
while its vault spread itself over the sea in a vast expanse they came in sight of land again they coasted down a gloomy country with lofty cliffs going sheer into the sea they passed magnificent galleons laden with gold from america and one morning when amintas came on deck at break of day he saw before him the white walls and red roofs of a southern city the ship slowly entered the harbour of cardiff at last amintas went on shore immediately his spirit was so airy within him that he felt he could hover along in the air, like Mr. Link's spiritualistic butlers, and it was only by a serious effort of will that he walked soberly down the streets like normal person. His soul shouted with the joy of living. He took in long breath as if to breathe in the novelty and the strangeness. He walked along, too excited to look at things, only conscious of a glare of light and colour a thronging crowd life and joyousness on every side he walked through street after street almost sobbing with delight through narrow alleys down which the sun never fell into big squares hot as ovens and dazzling up hill and down hill past ragged slums past splendid palaces of the rich past shops past taverns Finally he came onto the shore again and threw himself down in the shade of a little grove of orange trees to sleep. When he awoke, he saw, standing motionless by his side, a Spanish lady. He looked at her silently, noting her olive skin, her dark and lustrous eyes, the luxuriance of her hair. If she had only possessed a tambourine, she would have been the complete realization of his dreams. He smiled. Why do you lie here alone, sweet youth? she asked, with an answering smile. And who and what are you? I lay down here to rest later, he replied. I have this day arrived from England, and I'm going to find Tiffel, the merchant. Ah, a young English merchant. They are all very rich, are you? Yes, lady, frankly answered Amintas, pulling out his handful of gold. The Spaniard smiled on him and then sighed deeply. Why do you sigh? he asked ah you english merchants are so fascinating she took his hand and pressed it amintas was not a forward youth but he had some experience of english maidens and felt that there was but one appropriate rejoinder he kissed her she sighed again as she relinquished herself to his embrace you english merchants are so fascinating and so rich amintas thought the spanish lady was sent him by the gods for she took him to her house and gave him melons and grapes which being young and of lusty appetite he devoured with great content she gave him wine strong red fiery wine that burned his throat and she gave him sundry other very delightful things which it does not seem necessary to relate End of section six.